On this week's episode of CineChill, I'm joined by Lewis McGregor, the founder of IndieTips.com. I've always been one for music, uh, uh, especially soundtrack scores. Um, and I think the score to Lord of the Rings, my dad, uh, he retired last month. Uh, he used to be the warden and caretaker of a sports centre um, in my local community. And back, you know, going, when was Lord of the Rings released? 2001. So when I was 10, 11, um, we used to go into the big sports hall and there was a lot of gymnasium equipment uh, and like sports mats. And we used to set up an, an obstacle course and we would play around in that area to the Lord of the Rings music because I bought the soundtrack. And for as long as I can remember, I've always walked to A to B with my earphones in listening to soundtracks and always kind of sort of creating um, a scenario in my head to the music that is playing. Uh, this could be, you know, for the most mundane tasks, let's just say if I go to the gym, I might think of something terrible happening to uh, my niece and nephew to kind of get me in that enraged mode to lift heavier weights. Or if I'm walking across a meadow to a location, I might have some... Uh, film soundtrack in which then paints a different picture but I've always had these different pictures coming into my head from the music that I listen to and I think that's been my biggest inspiration I don't think it's necessarily been um, a specific film where I've watched a film and thought I'm going to do that it's just been a case I, I I definitely grew into the the mp3 generation where people had just started to move away from CD players and they had MP3s, which could hold up to like 50 tracks. Uh, and, and I, I was a big part of that. And I've had earphones in my ears since I was 10, nine years old. And because of that, I've always had these images in my head. And I think it, it you know, it, it comes from that for me. Um, just having an idea pop into my head and wanting to make it. But that idea usually comes to me, uh, from a song I'm listening to or a piece of music I'm listening to, I should say. I think when I was younger, it was a way to relive the film because it used to take probably about a year for a movie to come back like from cinema to video. And I remember they used to have a big promotional thing like Indiana Jones is back. And it's like, well, he's on VHS, but you've waited for you know a year for it to come out. But they'd release the soundtrack usually around the same time the movie came out on the cinema and I would get the soundtrack and I would just listen to it with my headphones about, you know, eight years old or something. And that soundtrack would just be retelling the story for me. It's like you can listen to the original Star Wars soundtrack and you can't help but relive that movie by listening to it. So I've always liked film soundtracks and now I find music is my favorite part of filmmaking you know when something's finished the part i get most excited about is when i get a composer and he makes something and it just makes it it's like yes this feels now like a film as opposed to this just feels like i'm like some shot like just the music in a film to me is the glue that keeps it all together so are there any specific film scores that obviously lord of the rings is a big one and that isn't yeah i can just listen to that 
you know, when I'm doing taxes or whatever, and it just, you know, takes you back to, um, you know, the Shire. But are there any other, like, film scores that stand out for you? Um, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm more into um, uh, TV scores at the moment, um, especially with uh, the Hannibal score. Ah, um, yeah, you. I remember you talking about Hannibal, saying you were <laughs> gutted when it was uh, when it was cancelled. Yeah, I um, am a, a massive Hannibal fan. In the summer, I paid at least two hundred pound for transport tickets and um, tickets to certain attractions inside of the London Film and Comic Con just to meet Mads Mikkelsen. Um, Hannibal completely changed the way I look at things creatively uh, and the score is no exception it's not something that you can listen to on a whim um, it's very requires a very acute taste because um, it is very uh, a very weird score I guess you could say um, but I, I love it um, and I've just recently had the Stranger Things um, vinyls come through uh, for volume 2 um, so that's a. I, I like listening to TV scores and film scores on vinyl as well. It's. it's I, I don't know why. I just like it. Um, but yeah, I, I think with TV, there's a lot more room for a composer to express themselves in comparison with film because you're limited in time. Um, and of course, in TV, you have a, a massive character act progression. And. I think a composer can really make a lot more um, emotional music in that time scale because there is more more time. So I think TV scores are more drawn to at the moment, uh, especially Stranger Things. I, I absolutely love that soundtrack. I usually do a top five movie, like a, a, top, a top five films of the year. And this year is a pure struggle because I haven't been to see that many, which I think says a lot about, um, you know, films for 2016. TV is absolutely killing it at the moment. And Stranger Things is probably the, my favorite thing um, that I've seen this year. That and I'm really enjoying Westworld as well at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on episode six, so no spoilers at the moment. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I, I don't do do spoilers. Um, but I th- uh, talking about TV, and I'm gonna do my very best because yesterday when I was talking to Ryan, I mentioned Lost, and then before he knew it, I was just going off on one because that for me is like that changed everything for me. That was just such a big show for me, and I know people don't like the ending. Well, I know some people don't like the ending, some people love the ending. Um, but I'll always say, you know, it's not about how it ends, it's about the journey. And I I really like the ending. Um, but the music in that um, series is just just absolutely stunning. It's Michael Giacchino. And um, did, did you ever watch that show when it was uh, when it was out or? Do you know what? I've never, ever watched Lost. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what Ryan said. And that, then it spent the next 20 minutes telling him, you've got to watch this show. Honestly, it's it's incredible. Um, I suppose people don't want to watch it if they haven't seen it by now and they've heard like the negative stuff. There's a lot of negativity about it, about the end. But I really do think people who they should 
just watch it because like the characters, the way it was written, this you know the cinematography, the music, the way characters would you'd hate a character at the start. You'd be like, I do not like him. The way the show works is it uses these flashbacks and then you'd see the reasons why, what they are doing, and you go, ah, he's not such a bad guy. <laughs> you know? And then before you know it, you're warming to who originally you thought was a, was a bad guy. The only problem I've got with these shows is, does it have an ending, or does it just, that's it? You don't know what happens? No, it, um, I guess you could say it does have an ambiguous ending, um, because the showrunner, um, Brian Fuller, he there were plans to go on. I think they wanted to go up to season six and it finished on season three, but it does finish in a sense that like, for example, um, when the show ended, a lot of people were satisfied with the ending of season three, even okay. though that they wanted the, the show to go on. Um, it, it, it was, it was a beautiful ending. I loved it. I, I loved the entire show. So I'm, I'm completely biased. <laughs> Lewis, the first time I heard about you was when you were making that series, Grim. Um, what exactly happened with that? To basically reduce a 4,000-word essay on what happened uh, to the <laughs> series, it became too big for its own good. Um, we just had a lot of exposure outside of the, um, you know, kind of like the little condensed environment that we made the story in whereas it was what like three crew members um six cast members and all of a sudden it was just getting so much exposure on the outside and then that kind of crumbled it the first time we went to try and film it the second time we tried to film it um it was just too big in the sense of the production and the story even though that we had all of the equipment and we had people not necessarily 24-7, but we had people um, who were committed, I guess you could say. Uh, just what we wanted was always too big. And what ended up happening, let's just say we had uh, on day one, we had three scenes. We would only be able to shoot the one. So those nice. extra two scenes would be put onto the back burner. Day two, we had four scenes. We'd be able to do two. And it just got to the point where we were putting so many scenes on the back burner to pick back up because we weren't able to yeah. complete them. Um, we were just left with just an assortment of random scenes. And, and, the, and the problem was because it was all unpaid for cast and crew. Uh, you know, when someone was like, look, I got overtime, I got to take it. I can't say no, <laughs> you got to stay here. Um, so because of that, it was a case of, let's just say you know scene two and three wasn't able to be done on day three we tried to do it on day four but the actor from day three wasn't available on day four right. and it, it just ended up a domino effect of completely kind of toppling the entire production and by the end of the first week in 2014's regime of shooting it was it was done and dusted there and then um and i think it's just been a case now it's something that i still if I flick on one of my old hard drives and I look at the footage and the scripts and the production photos, it's something that I still hold quite dearly. But it's something that I think became a product of itself. And it requires a lot more money and a lot more people. I, I can't rely on 
people who want to help for the sake of helping. I would much prefer being able to say, look, I can pay you a proper day's wage. I need you to do sound um, rather than trying to acquire people to do stuff out of their free time. Mm. So I think it, it's still going to happen. Um, it's, it's, it's still going to be a thing in the future. But at the moment, it's on the back burner and I'm doing a lot of smaller short films with a smaller cast and crew, which in the back of my mind, they are being done to hopefully get me to the stage where I can then properly finance Grimm. Right. Yeah. I mean, what you said there is is was mirroring like my sort of first experience with the film. I mean, I finished it, but it took three years, um, and it was it was a horror film I made. Um, I say horror film; it wasn't that scary. I set out to make the scariest film ever because I thought if I make the scariest film, it will go viral, and you know, thinking like Blair Witch yeah. type thing. Because you know, when you get these ideas, they're um, you have that idea in your head. It's like, this is what it's going to be like. And then, you know, things start to happen and you got to compromise. And so we decided to, or I decided to shoot a horror film uh, that was all set at night. Um, and we began shooting it in May, literally when the lights, like, like the clocks changed and it was not getting dark till, say, between nine and 10 o'clock. And I was asking crew to get to the location, which was my um, uncle's like spur house. He had like a, a granny flat on the t- side of his house and uh, asking them to get there for five o'clock. And it was just a logistical nightmare because, you know, we were waiting for it to get dark, which was fine because we were setting things up. And, you know, I wanted to be really professional with this because I'd worked on a number of other projects where... It was just like with friends, and even though this was with friends, I kind I went out and auditioned, you know, for the lead actress. Um, I used that star now, and you know, we were, like <laughs> still we didn't pay anybody, but you know, I made sure it didn't cost anybody. Um, yeah. and you know, I was like, I'm going to treat this as professional as I can. So I got like a producer to help me. I got you know, and it was like having a big crew, and the first day. Um, we have. I've got like a shot list. I bought that shot lister app, which is great. And I'm looking at it, going, right, okay. We've got eight shots. We've got like eight things to get, eight shoots, uh, scenes to get, and we haven't done half of one. And it's nearly eleven o'clock at night. And um, and I I realised then I'm getting more concerned about um uh getting the footage than what I get. And that was to me was was a problem. And then. Uh, so we did it five weekends in a row, um, which was a, it's a big ask for people, um, you know, say, hey, take your weekend off. The second weekend approaches and I'm going towards the location and I get a message from the assistant director and it was, sorry, I can't make it. I had a really long day in work, something along those mm-hmm. lines. And you just realize you can't be mad at these people because you're not paying them. Yeah, um, yeah. And it is so, it's frustrating because, you know, you watch the making of movies, that's like my film school, and you listen to the DVD commentaries and, you know, you hear this, like, amazing, you know, collaborative environment and you feel like, oh, I just want to be doing that. But, I mean, I suppose the good thing is that, as you say, you've got that on the back burner and that can be, well, maybe you need to make these other films as more of a, kind of because every film that you do you learn from it so it's like i know by the time i'm sort of ready to do grim then it's going to be like the the best thing you know ever and maybe 
it's this has all happened for a reason that maybe you as much are you know very talented filmmaker you weren't quite ready to do justice to this idea it was completely the wrong time i think in my life to to go ahead and and, and try and make that i think one of you know there's that whole aspect of of living life without regrets but if there's one thing i do regret is the crowdfunding at that time in my life um i would have much preferred to have done it now um but then in an ironic sense without doing the crowdfunding i wouldn't have been able to get where i am now um so it's it's, it's a kind of a cruel twist of fates but yeah it's on the back burner it will be done one day um hopefully soon because i do miss it i miss the world yeah so fast forward to you know to to now what have you had going on you know since uh grim you know you mentioned all the projects and you 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 um you write for a few websites as well don't you was it just one website yeah um no i write for two websites at the moment so you have indietips.com which is my own website there's just one sole writer which is myself um kind of around about four or five in-depth tips posted a month uh general filmmaking um, tips geared more so towards uh, newbies. And then I also write for premiumbeat.com, which is a stock footage, web- uh, stock footage, a stock music website where you can license out um, musical tracks, sound effects, trailer scores, whatever it may be for $49, which is super cheap. And on the side of that, they have a blog, uh, which is a massive resource for filmmakers. And, um, that you have uh, several different writers, a few in-house writers, a few uh, freelance contributors, and that's more directed towards people who are making their way or are already in the industry and are starting uh, their filmmaking career. Um, so that's kind of what I do. Um, I guess you could say not necessarily full time, but that takes up a lot of my time between those two sites. In terms of films uh, themselves, uh, since April, I've been making a short film um, called The Vagabond. Now, I don't think I've actually ever told anybody online what the title is yet, so th- this might be an exclusive. Nice. Um, yeah, it's called The Vagabond, and this is kind of a, an ironic story in the sense of what we've just spoken about, where you have so many people on board a short film, but because you're not paying them, you can't really rely on them to stay fully committed because obviously they have jobs they have might be married might have children uh, if you're not paying them they gotta put those priorities first so i decided to make a short film by myself literally just me as the sole crew member and uh well it, it we're about three days off from completing it at the moment but even when and and the reason why it was just to be myself was to remove the aspect of relying on other people when you can't pay them. And I think that, you know, when you, you're nearing, uh, well, I'm 26 now. And I, I, I just think that you can't really ask other 26 year olds to <laughs> do something for free. It's a lot different when you're in university or you're in school um, and everyone's in, in like, like their teens and, the young 20s. Sure. But I think at this age, people are setting up their careers. A lot of my friends are getting married. They're having their first kids. You can't expect someone to do something for free. Um, so I try to remove a lot of elements in terms of crew members. Uh, and, but the story was written 
specifically to tailor this so it, we would be able to go out and shoot if it was just me and the actor. Uh, the story revolves around um, the last man on Earth. Now, <laughs> Chris is uh, the lead actor. Um, uh, he's been an absolute star. The amount of crap that I put him through, covering him in fake blood. Um, we have this makeup mixture, which was used in Terminator Salvation, uh, which he absolutely hates. We have this fake hair, which he puts on. Um, and a lot of the time, because the fake hair was just bought from Wilkinson's, um, it comes apart very easily. So we have to super glue it at the start of every shoot. And more than often, when we put the hair back in his, uh, well, back in his, when we put the fake hair into his hair, uh, it's not necessarily dry. So when we're taking it out, we're pulling out the super glue of his scalp as well. Um, so he he's been through a lot, and I absolutely love him for it. But even when it's just been solely removed down to one crew member and one actor you know life still happens um on the week before shooting i had a a text from chris and he um said you're gonna kill me and i was like at at the time i i I texted my partner and i said look i think chris is gonna bail um this is it like i'm about to lose my actor a week out from filming and Chris told me that he had broken his foot. And I was like, you know, it's a complete lie. He's realized the amount of crap he's going to have to go through. He doesn't want to do it. Chris turns up at my house. His foot is blue. It's swollen. He's broken his foot. And it was just kind of like a case of that, that even though we had kind of limited so much stuff, in, so we didn't run into problems ourselves, it still happened. Um, you, you know, I would... We were quite lucky in terms of weather. Uh, we had gone out a few days to shoot, and an hour later it, um, it tipped down. But even when we removed it down to just one actor and one crew member, we still ran into problems. And it just goes to show that it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have, problems are going to happen. Even on the biggest productions, you know, like when... Um... Harrison Ford broke his leg on the Millennium Falcon and yeah. you know they were like ah well uh, I guess we could do some pickup shots you know that put them out for I think 6 months or something you know like that so you 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 can't you can't plan for for everything um so so how much more have you got to work on the on the Vagabond and when's it likely to be released well I've got a teaser coming out on the 17th um of December, that's that's the plan, but that's the deadline I've stuck myself to anyway. So we have, um, we do have another actress on board. Um, there's kind of two interlinking stories. You have one in 2014 and one in uh, 2034, um, and they kind of correspond to each other. So we have one more scene left with Chris, and then Chris is completely done. We've done Chris's final scene in his costume. Um, so there's no more fake hair or fake blood, which he's absolutely happy about. Uh, we have one more scene with Chris. I think we have around about six, seven more scenes with Sarah. Um, and then it's completely done. And then it's a case of the post-production aspect. But I know there's going to be quite visual effects heavy. Uh, what I want to do, and it's what I researched before I went into the short film, I looked at uh, you know the, the film The Road with Viggo Mortensen in. It's a film I've not watched, but I've got a friend who's uh, who's said to me, you, you've got to watch it, you will cry. 
Um, and the guy who told me that, he's like, he looks like he could be an extra from Game of Thrones. So <laughs> it was like, right, okay, I'll, uh, you know, he said, you've got to be in the right mood for it. And I've, it's one of those that I've, I've thought, I'll, I'll watch that. And then I just remember what he said and I go, oh, do you know what? But so I, I am going to watch it because I've heard a lot of people say it's, you know, it's fantastic. It, yeah, it is. It is quite a deep film. Um, but one of one of the aspects that I'm talking about it is uh, in terms of its visual effects. So it's set in a, an apocalyptic future, and um, I can't remember the web the website which I read this information from. But the visual effects uh, supervisor he likes a lot of uh, photorealism um, elements. So they would, you know, instead of kind of compositing a CGI fire, they would use um, a video file of fire and then. Uh, blend that into the actual uh, composition so that's what i wanted to do with this and you know stick a lot of telephone poles in um kind of rubbish and, and dirt on the floor um we we were actually quite lucky in one of the locations we went to well, it's it's obviously not good news um in reality but some people had actually tipped a load of rubbish um just in the middle of a meadow in the mountains so it completely spoiled the the scenery because you had an old bed, all these plastic bags. For us, it made a really nice apocalyptic scene. Um, but there are going to be moments where we're walking down the street where I'm going to have to stick that, those elements in. So the post-production aspect, I think, is going to take quite a few months on itself. Um, so I kind of want to get this teaser out by the 17th for this month, let people know it's happening, uh, and then kind of recline back into my hole and uh, get to editing it. So do you do the visual effects or have you got someone um, that that does them for you? Or is that something that you like to be hands-on with? Do you, do you know what? At, at the moment, I think it's just going to be a case of um, there's definitely a lot of festivals and competitions that I'm going to want to enter this into next year. So I think if it's getting to a stage where the visual effects are going to increase the amount of time if i'm going to do them um i might try and look to outsource that job uh, but at the moment it will be myself uh, in the case of the um the young guy that you referenced at the start of the podcast um i i grew up on after effects as well that's kind of how i got into filmmaking myself right was okay. through after effects and and following andrew kramer's uh, tutorials on video co-pilot so um I wouldn't like to say I'm an advanced user of After Effects, but I definitely know my way around the program. Yeah, I'm hoping to get Andrew on the uh, on the podcast eventually. I'm I'm because um, uh, I think it will be a really good person to uh, to get on. But yeah, so did you learn After Effects before Premiere? Um, yeah, I guess you could say so. When I was in school, I started uh, on Sony Vegas, right? Um. And then I moved on to uh, to, to Premiere Pro. Um, at the moment, I'm kind of moving off Premiere Pro onto Resolve uh, full time. Have you used Resolve at all for editing? I had a go at the because it's a free. Um, it's a, like they have a free version, and I had a go at the color grading, and it was just it. It was like using After Effects again. I was like, "What's all these nodes? Why can't I just?" move some dials and make it look nice and it was just so like complicated um and i believe it is incredible but at the moment i just use um the uh the new color um 
plugin with uh, Premiere, uh, what's it called, Lumetri, which I find is really, really good, you know, with the LUTs and, and stuff. Um, but it's about getting, you know, I try and put in as little, as like turn the dial as least as possible because, you know, it's like when you get anything, you go overboard with it. And I look at some of my, like, earlier videos even unsettled and i'm like what was i thinking you know it's like i tried to make it look dark but it just looks like a blue mess um what about for editing what about using resolve for editing have you tried that since um the 12.5 update it's a uh, pretty good uh, nle i've got a friend who uh, swears by it um he's a, a music producer he makes um sorry he's a, a choreographer and he makes music videos and he's very very talented and his edits are just like um you know that scene in um requiem for a dream okay um and he uses like insane like editing whereas i'm kind of old school where i like my editing just to be like quite slow i'll have to have a look at it i mean at the moment i won't because i'm uh, i'm working on a number of projects with premiere and the worst thing ever is when you install something else on your computer that's just like a sidetrack but how do you find using it well i was um in june i um Black Magic invited me to kind of this boot camp um, event. It was three days for for editors to basically learn Resolve as uh, an NLE rather than a, a color grading software. And um, I, I've actually recently started a tutorial series on using Resolve as an NLE, which I, I finished the first episode today. So I kind of feel like I'm just going to repeat what I uh, I talked about. But essentially... Uh, when I went there, I I had this preconception that I wasn't going to re- remove myself from Premiere. Um, I liked the interface too much. There was no way that anybody was going to get me onto anything else. Um, and after kind of like the first day of being taught the basic setup functions of Resolve and what it does, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be moving over because this is amazing. Um, it's It's completely revolutionary i think in, in the sense of that if you can get it for free and that's the crazy thing and as i say in my tutorial because my tutorials are directed i guess you could say especially the editing ones towards um those who kind of haven't really used editing software before or who are looking into get into filmmaking um that there are some plugins missing um I don't think that you can render out in 4K or deliver 4K files. But, you know, if you're just coming back from a day's worth of shooting with a 550D or a, you know, um, a Canon 5D Mark II, mm-hmm. then it, it doesn't necessarily matter if you have the pro version or not. And the free version is more than sufficient enough. Um, and it's just insane. It's it's crazy. It's it, The little things which attribute when when you um add all of the little things together it just makes it a completely different software so i have slowly been moving off i think when i've got like um a uh, a small job that comes in and needs to be done relatively quickly say within 24 hours um at the moment i'll probably still use premiere just because i know it off the back of my hand um but i think going into 2017 resolve will be the sole editing software remaining on my computer. 
I mean, it doesn't really matter what you use because at the end of the day, the person who is watching your film isn't going to know what it's being edited with. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's necessarily about um, in that aspect. I think it's more in a sense of your efficiency as an editor on how fast you can do operations. Um, like in, in this first tutorial um, that I'll be going out, you know, I, I'm just waiting for uh, the Blackmagic team just to kind of okay uh, it's, it's not necessarily a, a partnership in the sense of that I'm producing tutorials uh, for them. Um, I've just sent it over so they can kind of make sure that they're seeing where the tutorial series is heading because it is directed sure. towards uh, new guys. Um, but in this first episode, uh, we speak about um, the media page. So um, Resolve is broken up into four separate pages. You have your media, your edit, your color, and your delivery. And the media page um, is where you organize, import, and sort out your media ready for the edit. Now, if you think about Resolve, you kind of have that one little panel on the entire screen where that's where you import all of your media, you sort it all out. Resolve, you have a fully designated page for that operation. And when you've kind of imported everything and sorted it all out, it just makes the editing so much more efficient. And with that, it speeds up your time. And you can start doing jobs which might have taken you, you know, let's just say theoretically seven hours. It takes you four because of the efficiency of the software. And I think that's where when you start increasing your level of an editor, it's... that's where choosing the right tool becomes uh, a very important choice. Yeah, what well, uh, I think with with editing it is all about the organization. You know, um, when I first started, I remember, you know, not even using bins. I would just literally have the project window just full of files with no order and you know i mean that i look back at unsettled that edit and it was just a mess you know sequences upon sequences because i'm like i broke down scenes into sequences and then had like a master timeline and and then you know of course you go oh i'm going to start over i need to be a re- like a range and you know but but now the way i have it i've got sort of a a template that i use um which you know it's about organization so that way i mean what was um, it sounds like a, a very simple thing, but just something changing your uh, project file to thumbnails. So basically you can see and scrub over the footage and just go, ah, oh, that's the clip I want to use. And you can just, you know, just drop it in. Um, so, but I'll definitely have a look at the, um, at, well, at your tutorial series. When is that likely to be uh, released? Hopefully <laughs> it should be available now. Um, if you go to youtube.com, Ugly McGregor, you can have a look at the basic media management and import functions of Resolve and try and get yourself equipped with that software. Uh, if you don't like it, you don't like it. Go back to Premiere, but at least you can learn the foundations of it. Lewis McGregor, it's always a pleasure speaking with you and we appreciate your time. Mm-hmm.